Bibles to James chapter 5. We come this morning to the first six verses of James 5. This is the 18th sermon in a series. James, as a reminder, is the younger brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, Mary. Contrary to what some religious traditions teach, Mary had other sons and daughters. She was not a perpetual virgin. James is one of Jesus' brothers, so is Jude, who also has a little letter later on in the New Testament. James, therefore, is quite well acquainted with Jesus' teaching, and we see no, at no point does James actually quote his older brother's instruction, but you see James uh, echoing and reverberating with the teaching of Christ throughout this important little letter. And this morning's text is especially true in that regard, as we have before us warnings for the rich. These days, whenever I read a warning label, I have to admit that my motivation is more often curiosity than carefulness. I'm not like, ooh, warning label. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what lawsuit prompted this warning label. And then again, in my cynicism, I start rolling through the scenarios in my mind which might have generated yet another frivolous caution to people that would otherwise just sort of know what to do. You know, I mean, the classic one is cup of coffee, contents may be hot. Thank you. Good to know. Actually, I wouldn't be drinking it if it weren't hot. I actually think I was alive. This must have been in the 80s when that lawsuit happened. I think it was a McDonald's lawsuit where someone spilled hot coffee on themselves. And if you're a lawyer or if you do lawsuits against corporations and you want to correct me on anything afterwards, please feel free. But all kidding aside, there are warnings which are important, warnings which shouldn't be ignored. As I think back, speaking of the 80s, some of the instruction that my parents gave me when I was a teenager, for the most part, I think this was my attitude. It didn't matter what they said, I already knew I was right. What about you? What warnings have you been given that you're either currently ignoring or that you have ignored in the past. And I'm not just talking to teenagers, although I want the teens to listen. Some of you sitting here this morning need to be warned. Danger awaits you if you continue on your present course. Some of you are ignoring important warnings from the Lord and are treating them a little bit like I treat the warning on my coffee cup. Hmm, interesting, curious, not relevant. Our text this morning, as I said, is a warning. Actually, it's four warnings to the rich. Now, who are these people? These are people who, in James's congregation, most likely have accumulated so much wealth that they no longer need to work. Cool, huh? This is sort of like retire early, four hours a week, hang out on the boardwalk or the beach, and, you know, phone in a couple of times. These are people that are full in every respect. That's what rich means. Their bank accounts are full. Their closets are full. Their tables and their bellies are full. Their reputation is rich and full. And they have plenty of friends, more than probably they know what to do with. Now, maybe you can't immediately relate to that kind of person. 
I mean, are you someone who has everything that you need to the fullest? Maybe you are. In which case, you need to hear James's warnings to the rich. But maybe, like me, you don't have everything that you need. Maybe sometimes it feels like the opposite. Maybe the rich man I've described actually sounds pretty good to you. Retire early, not have to work for a living, have plenty of money and friends, sign me up. But the truth is that unless your heart belongs to God, no amount of worldly possessions or material goods will ever by themselves bring you happiness. In fact, the warning is if you're not careful, your friends, your money, your clothing, your accomplishments, all of it will only bring you sorrow and sadness in the end. Unless you view the blessings of life, of this life, in light of the life which is to come, those things of this life, which God designed to be blessings, become curses and become your accusers in the life which is to come. So these are warnings which all of us need to hear, whether we are rich or want to be rich, whether we are poor or whether we have much. So let's give our attention then to the reading of God's holy word, warnings to the rich, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. This is the eternal and always true word of God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So far the reading in God's holy word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, as we turn now from the reading of your holy word to its exposition and explanation, my prayer is that the words of my mouth and the thoughts, the questions and reflections on each one of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight and that we would not leave changed, that we would hear these warnings to the glory of God and for our ultimate good. In Jesus' name, amen. The four warnings in our passage, the first warning in verses 1 and 2, if you take a look at the text, is a warning against the accumulation of wealth. It's a warning against the accumulation of wealth. Now, three items of wealth are mentioned in the passage. It says in verse 2, your riches have rotted. Now, the word here, riches, is actually quite ambiguous and vague, and the fact that it's rotting or cor uh, not corroding but uh, decomposing tells me that, or at least suggests the possibility that, that this first item of wealth is food or provision. The second item 
relates to one's clothing. Your garments are moth-eaten. I have little Ziploc baggies in some of my wool sweaters with cloves and other spices in them, and they're kind of tucked in there. You know why I did that? It's to keep the, the moths away, because I've noticed that if I don't wear something very often, I'll pull it out, and there's a choice hole right in the shoulder or in the elbow. Your garments are moth-eaten. What's the third item of wealth is actually currency. Gold and silver, James says, have corroded. And this is interesting. Gold actually doesn't corrode. It's iron that corrodes. I used to be a science teacher. This isn't complicated science now. Iron, water, air, corrosion. Gold doesn't have that in it. So what James might be referring to is perhaps these items of gold and silver aren't completely pure. Perhaps there's some impurities that are oxidizing or mixed in with these precious metals. It's also possible that we're talking about iron coins that have a a thin coating of gold or silver on them. That may be what's corroding. Or maybe James is just speaking figuratively because I don't care what precious metal you're talking about. It could be, you know, plutonium or something, something diamonds. In the great day and the final day, every precious metal will corrode. So in each case, the things that you are accumulating are not holding their value. Over time, all of your wealth is losing value. It's molding, it's corroding, it's rusting, it's degrading, it's becoming moth-eaten. There's a lot of talk today about the monetary policy. We're dealing with inflation and perhaps a recession. And if you're into these things, if you're into business and the stock market, you're noticing that the markets are down, they're plunging, things aren't worth what they used to be. And if you're into cryptocurrency, you're really in trouble. But you don't need to know anything about monetary policy or crypto in order to recognize that if you have put your trust in these things, you're an absolute fool. Now, we need money to survive some mode of exchanging value for things. But the sort of blasphemy that we see in Wall Street or some of the crypto advocates is nothing short of pure, unmitigated arrogance to think that you can control your life by your stuff that you've accumulated in your bank account. So whatever your means of storing money, gold, silver, stocks, or even crypto, before you know it, it will be gone. It will not last. You know, I need to be warned. Phil, don't put your trust in money. Don't think that a raise is going to fix things. Don't think that a little more in the retirement account is going to make me sleep easier at night. The Lord is speaking to me, Phil, don't envy those who are rich. Don't long for all the full blessings that this life has to offer. That guy that has two hands full of blessings and I just have two fingers full of a half a blessing. Don't look at him and wish that I were him. Don't do that. Beware. This is a violation of the the 10th commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his possessions, his money. 
The warning here is that there are hardships, James 5.1, we're told. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries, the hardships, the difficulties, the trials that are coming. It's interesting, James here in chapter 5 returns to the warning of trials where we begun this book. Count it all joy, he said, to the humble when you face trials of many times. But here he's saying to the rich, to the proud, to the self-confident, the self-possessed, He's saying, weep and howl, beware, be warned. There's an important lesson here that might be easy to miss. Look at what the text says. If you have a pencil in your Bible, circle this word. Your riches have, underline that, have rotted. Your garments are, circle that, they are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold have underline, exclamation point, corroded. What is James saying with this choice of words? Have rotted, are corroded. Well, James is speaking like a prophet. You know what the prophets do? The prophets are given a vision of God. The future is unzipped for them. It's like the curtain is pulled back on what is yet to come. And they're so gripped, they're so possessed, they're so owned by this vision that they speak in present tense or in past tense about the future tense. Listen to what I'm saying. The prophet is so seized by what is to come that it seems to him to have already happened. James adopts the prophet's mantle here as his older brother Jesus did so many times in regards to the dangers of wealth. And he says, your money, it's already gone. And the rich who James has reasoned, come now, you rich, come over here, let's talk, let's, let's reason this out together. The rich are going like, wait a minute. No, 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 James, I got plenty of cash in my bill fold. Joe over there, he's got all my silver, all my gold. I, I checked just yesterday. I mean, unless something has happened in the last 24 hours and stranger things have happened, I'm doing fine, James. Oh, no, James says, no, no. Your, your money, it's corroding. It has corroded. It's as good as gone, he says. All those clothes in your closet, the clothes that you picked from today, that, that nice tie and that clean pressed shirt, it's filled with holes. You don't even see it. This speaks to the prophetic tone of not just this warning in James, but throughout the book where we do well in reading this little letter to, to see James as, as following in his brother's footsteps, Jesus, who speaks the word of God without fear and speaks as if the end of the ages is upon us at this very moment. And this is good news, I think. We're talking now about my first point, the accumulation of wealth. This is good news that James is just a prophet. Well, how is that good news, Pastor? Well, think about it. This hasn't happened yet. All the money that you've socked away in retirement it hasn't decayed yet. All that money tied up in stock options or crypto options, it isn't rotten yet. All your dreams of saving fast, retiring early, haven't vanished in smoke yet. 
your aspirations of college and a high-paying job, they haven't drifted through your fingers yet like sand. All the shoes in your closet, they aren't turning to dust yet. All the food that you've stocked away in your prep for disaster pantry isn't crumbling into moldy residue yet. All the time that you've got on your hands now that you've retired, that time isn't accusing you like a prosecuting attorney in the great court of Almighty God yet. It's still yours to dispose of as you may see fit. There's still time. This is good news. There's still hope. The second warning in our passage is a warning against withholding pay. This is an interesting warning to the rich. I want to make as an aside here some commentators, actually most of the commentators that I was reading on this said at this point in James's letter, he's not talking to Christians. He's talking to people that are already damned. And I'll admit, I, I'm just a preacher, but I read this and I read it and I read it again and I said, I don't think so. I think these are Christians. Just like James 4, the Christian businessman who is cocky in his plans, James 5 is the Christian rich man or woman who is self-satisfied in his or her accumulated wealth and who is defrauding his employees by withholding pay. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud while they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This warning is about how the rich Christian in the congregation is running his or her business. Now, James has in mind a wealthy landowner here. We're talking about an agrarian society. That means farming, crops, seasons, weather. It's not an easy business to be in. This wealthy landowner employs or engages the labor of daily workers. And these harvesters, these daily workers have agreed to work for an amount that was settled in advance but they haven't been paid Something happened, and we're left to sort of fill in the blanks in our mind. Something happened that these harvesters, these farmers, these pickers, they're not salaried employees, by the way. They don't have a contract. They probably don't have a checking account. These are poor, hardworking men and women who need to be paid at the end of the day. They don't live paycheck to paycheck because that would imply they get a paycheck. They deal in cash. And the cash that they're owed wasn't paid them. The daily wage by the landowner was held back. And I know there was a good reason. I mean, you know, things happen. It's not the landowner's fault that they can't wait two days to be paid. 
They should have saved up some money. They shouldn't have spent all their money on those luxuries that they couldn't afford. I know Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. In the law of God, I can't be expected to be sensitive to the needs of all of my employees. This isn't a knock against capitalism. It's a knock against greed, indifference, selfishness, legal stealing, stealing by contract in black and white with signatures notarized. The wealthy manipulation of the system, of the lives of the people under you, because you can and you do. It is a critique of immoral money-making, not of money-making. James is criticizing, like a prophet, loveless leadership in business. And I believe it applies to the very society in which we live. I said loveless. Now, love is not the way contracts are enforced. Love is not the way business gets done. Fields don't get harvested by love in case you hadn't noticed. You got to get up early and work all day. You get blisters and sunburned. There's no or not much love in that. Students don't get taught by love. They don't get good grades by love. Engines don't get assembled by love. It's a well-prepared lesson and a guy with tools that takes care of those things. Houses don't get built by love, but by two-by-fours, hammers, and nails. Chores don't get done by love, but by children or husbands or wives or even servants showing up on time, getting down on their hands and knees with the rag and the gloves and putting in some elbow grease. That's how it gets done. But... If you hadn't noticed, things don't always work out the way we plan. Things fall apart. Mistakes get made. Schedules get changed. People don't keep their word. Guys don't show up. Life gets in the way of business. And when you're rich or powerful, intelligent, motivated, successful, driven, you can't afford anything that sets back the schedule or changes the profit expectation. A person with responsibilities can't deal with interruptions. Point being, if you're smart, you're not going to let that happen. You're going to keep the wages. It's just two days. It's not your fault. You've worked hard to get where they are. They have a chance too. It's a free country. Everybody wants an exceptions. But because these monies you have kept are actually speaking something. James tells us that they are witnessing against you. They are literally crying out that money in your pocket, that money in your, in your bank account is actually preaching a sermon. It's not your money, is what James is saying. It belongs to someone else. And that sermon, though you may not hear it now, will be rehearsed for you in the great and terrible day 
of God's wrath. And it's not just the money that's preaching. The workers are praying. These are God-fearing, hard-working men and women who are praying to God for help to pay the bills for the money that you kept. Your workers are praying to God that God would change your heart. Lord, please help my boss be merciful to me this time. Help him, to, help him to listen, Lord. Lord, have mercy. Holy Spirit, move in the heart of my employer that he or she would be kind to me in this situation. I didn't ask for it, and I need help. And God is hearing those prayers. He's listening. And notice who they're praying to. You know, if you hadn't heard lately, you don't need to pray to the saints. They're too busy praying to God to listen to you and praising God. But it is biblical to pray to different names of God. Did you notice who they're praying to? They're praying to someone you might not have prayed to recently or maybe ever. The workers are praying, verse, verse 4, to the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. What is the host? The host is the invisible armies of God. Oh yes. The poor man is praying to the Lord God of armies. And who better for a poor man to pray to than Almighty God who controls not only the armies of men and all the kings of the earth are like a drop in the bucket before the Lord God of hosts. But if you add all those armies together and you put them on one side of the scale and then you put even a fraction of Almighty God's armies on the other, It'll be way more than a three-to-one route, my friends. Way more. So the workers know when praying about their rich bosses to pray to the Lord God of hosts. They pray to the God of armies, the, the one name of God that emphasizes the awesome and overwhelming power over any other force in the universe that the rich could possibly hope to marshal to their advantage. The one power, in fact, that the rich cannot control is Almighty God, the Sovereign Lord Sabaoth, the Lord God of armies. That's the second warning. The third warning and the fourth, I'll be more brief. Warning against accumulated wealth, that's the first warning. Warning against defrauding your laborers, your workers, corrupt business practices. That's the second warning. And in case you wonder whether Christians do this, think about the South before the Civil War. How many Christians sat in churches under how many preachers baptizing, authenticating, and endorsing the wicked practice of man-stealing slavery. Oh yes, these are warnings that Christians need to hear. The third warning is warning against extravagance. I wish I had more time to develop this, but I'm hoping that it's somewhat self-evident that we live in an extravagant society of unbelievable excess. It's disgustingly gross and excessive the amount of extravagance that we're walking amongst. 
the consumption of stuff and the display of wealth is embarrassing for society that's founded on Christian principles. Our fascination, not only with the extravagance of others, but our determination to pursue equal or, or exceedingly greater lifestyles, if I could put it in a word, and I hate to say this from the pulpit, it is disgusting. It's disgusting. And it's a shame because it's in the church. We don't even realize what we're doing when we dive in headfirst into the extravagance of Netflix, Instagram, Instagram, TikTok, over and over again, Facebook. We're finding out just how small and poor and weak and meager we are, and we're drawn like moss to the fire of this extravagance that we could only possibly dream of. We wouldn't have dreamed of it in another day. Let's display how wealthy we are. Let's brag about how good, smart, clever, funny, successful we are. Our beautiful children, our beautiful spouses, our beautiful vacations, our beautiful cars, our beautiful, beautiful, beautiful things. It's excessive and it's embarrassing. Look at how we revel, is what the text says, and celebrate. Verse 5, look at how you live in luxury, it says in verse 5. And where does the text say we are doing this in verse 5? It says we are doing it on earth. You're reveling and you're luxuriating on earth. But we have been taught that God's will is to be done on earth thy will be done you know the prayer thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven they're not luxuriating in heaven they're basking in the glory and the radiance of almighty god in heaven they're not accumulating things for themselves and their own ease in heaven they're unloading their treasures at the feet of the risen lord jesus christ in heaven We're luxuriating on earth while the angels are luxuriating in the glory of God in heaven. The principle of delayed gratification is the idea that what you're not enjoying now will bring you pleasure later. Well, how's that going? How are you doing at that inner impulse to add one more thing to the stable of things of your collection? You all have collections? cars or garden shears. I have two lawnmowers. Two. Dolls, baseball cards, computers, hobbies, skills, degrees, jobs. James actually says what you're preparing for, unbeknownst to you. Verse 5, if you think my language is excessive, James says, you have fattened your hearts for the day of butchery. It's in the Bible, the New Testament. 
It's as if he's saying you should be using delayed gratification to defer pleasures now, growing thin, if you will, but instead you're fattening yourself for the day of butchery, which is a graphic way of describing Almighty God and the judgment that's coming. I've had the opportunity to visit some very beautiful places in my life, and one in particular I will never forget. My mother remembers this as well. A home on Lake Tahoe next to one of the richest men in the world. Now, it's one thing to be the richest men in the world, but to live next to the richest men in the world is pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, I live next to the richest man in the world. You know, he's not going to live next to just anybody. There's standards in this neighborhood, friends. Well, at the house next to the richest, one of the richest men in the world, I got to ride jet skis off the private dock. It was awesome. Never experienced anything like it before or since. And in sharing this experience with a friend of mine, a mentor actually, he said with a twinkle in his eye, tongue in his cheek, but deadly serious, that's one thing you won't get to enjoy in heaven. Now that's not the end of the story. I didn't quite know what he meant, I admit it. I'm still mulling it over in my mind even as we speak this morning. Sharing some of my perplexity with another friend of mine, a pastor, a young guy. Oh, you should have seen the anger on his face. We were at Starbucks, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I told my friend the story and what my mentor said about this beautiful experience he had, and my friend was indignant. How dare your mentor criticize and put down that beautiful experience that you had. Doesn't he know that all good things come from God and are to be enjoyed? Well, he's not a pastor anymore, my young friend. And while it is true that all things are to be enjoyed, we are clearly told in this passage to be very careful about indulging in any luxury in this life. James and my mentor are not scandalous. They are warning us and cautioning us what we need to hear as middle-class Americans, many of us, perhaps not all of us, some of you are higher, some of you are lower. You need to hear this. You know, this church needs to hear it, our denomination needs to hear it. It seems to me that the denomination our church is a part of will not rest until we are the biggest and richest Presbyterian denomination out there. We're working on it. Sophisticated, educated, well-funded churches need to hear this warning. The final warning is against murder. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, I don't think murder was intended at first. There was a trial of some kind. 
There were accusations made. There were lawyers. They presented their case. Condemnation is mentioned. And after the condemnation, the accused was sentenced. The problem, however, is that according to James, he was righteous. The accused was innocent. But does the innocent, righteous victim, unjustly condemned, sentenced to murder, does he resist? No. Like a lamb that goes to the slaughter. Like a sheep before her shearers is silent. I'm told by experts that this might be an allusion to the murder of Abel by Cain, the two famous brothers in the book of Genesis. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's fascinating to think. It certainly seems to hint at the murder of Jesus, the righteous one who is condemned in a trial. And I don't have time this morning to comment on Roe v. Wade, but Adam mentioned it in his prayer. It seems apropos. Those children that are murdered do not resist you. It's a warning to the rich. Well, at this point, you might be wondering, Pastor, I thought you said that I needed to listen to these warnings so far. I certainly don't feel rich. I'm just a teenager. I'm just a mom. I'm just a day laborer. But I think you are quite wealthy, actually. You have a school that you attend. Most of you do. You have a home that you live in. You're safe from harm most of the time. Whatever harm you've experienced in the past, you're dealing with pretty well, not perfectly, but you're getting there. Most of you have parents that love you or loved you. Many of you have parents who are Christians. Your parents provide for you or have provided for you. They've situated you so you're sitting here clothed. Your belt is on. Your shoes are tied. Things are good, man. Things are really, really good. Some of you have a future in college or a trade, gainful employment, super proud of our graduates and And those who have graduated, what a moment, what a blessing, what wealth. Have you stopped and thought about the great country that we live in? I mean, I know it's easy pickings, it's low-hanging fruit to criticize the United States, to criticize this and that, our, our systems, the Democrats, the Republicans. It's easy to do that. This is the greatest country in the world. We are the richest, most free, and most blessed country on the planet. There is no one who's hearing this sermon today who isn't overflowing with blessings and wealth. Each and every single one of these things, however, pales in comparison to the fact that a sinner believing in Jesus Christ has all the treasures of heaven at your disposal. Yes, you are rich rich beyond compare. And this is just a short list. And every one of these things that I've mentioned are a witness. They're preaching at you right now through the preacher. And they're telling you, your things, your people are telling you something. They're delivering a message. And they're saying, stop complaining. Stop comparing. Stop coveting. 
Cling to Christ. Look to the Lord. Live for Him. Stop living for yourself. Come now, you rich. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Let's break this down. Let's spread it out. Let's think it through. I'm pleading with you. I'm reasoning with you. I'm commanding you. Don't you know that trouble is coming? That this world is passing away? And that already breaking into time is the judgment of God and the blessing of God? And it's there for the taking. I want to say something before I conclude. James is not against money. James is against, as Paul is, the love of money. It's not wrong to have money accumulated and socked away and stored up and tagged and designated. That's just smart human living. And if you're not good at budgeting or a spending plan, you should. James has already advised the wealthy in chapter 1 to adopt a certain mindset. I want to refer you to that. He said, let those who are rich in this present age boast or brag about their low position. When we get to chapter 5, he's saying, y'all didn't listen to me. So now I'm warning you. He gave advice in chapter 1 and a warning in chapter 5. That's how it works. Listen and be taught early on or you will be warned. And if you don't hear the warning, you will be judged. How does a rich man or woman boast in her low position or his low position? Here's a few ideas. This is what I preached when I preached that passage. Thank God I am not measured by my stuff. I am so happy to not be measured in my importance as a human being by how much stuff I have. I am proud to be measured by another standard than what everybody around me measures themselves by. I am glad to be but a, but a Christian, a humble sinner saved by grace. In fact, if there's one thing you need to know about me, I belong to Jesus. That's how you boast in your low position. So in conclusion this morning, I began by talking about warnings that we need to hear. The warning on a coffee cup is one thing. But what about another cup? The cup of your life. Picture in your mind a cup. It can be made of ceramic, metal. Maybe it's a mug. Maybe it's a beer stein. The cup of your life. Would you say it's full? Half full? Half empty? Brimming to the top. David had a cup in Psalm 23 which the Lord gave him along with a full table of food. We read in this most famous psalm in the presence of his enemies. And he said, sitting in front of his enemies at the table, he looked at his cup and he goes, Oh my goodness, my life's cup is overflowing with goodness and grace. My cup runneth over. Maybe your cup is like Christ, 
who in an agonizing night of prayer asked the Father three times to remove this horrifying cup. Yet even in praying, he said, not my will, but thine be done. This is a cup that none of you have to drink. It's a cup of judgment and wrath that no mortal will ever have to drink again. He drank it for you. He became cursed so that you might be blessed. He became poor so that you might become rich. That's why David could say his cup runneth over in the presence of his enemies is because already he was appropriating the mercy of God which was to come in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He believed that God's goodness to him was not measured in the end by the things he had or did not have. But in this poem of ages, he knew that his wealth was determined by his union and communion with Almighty God. And in that, he was rich. Come now, you rich. Weep and mourn now for those who mourn their riches and attainments and achievements and attachments will be comforted, truly comforted, not only in this life, but in the life which is to come. Amen. Father, as we bow in prayer, we thank you for your word. These aren't easy topics. We don't come to the house of God to be slapped on the back and necessarily told we're doing great, although many of us are, Lord, by your, by your mercy and kindness, we are doing really, really well. But we need these warnings. In spite of our progress in the faith, in spite of our attainments, which we have given to you, Lord, many of us have given all the glory to you in our many, many attainments, the graduates in particular, Lord. We recognize that their attainments are trophies of grace. We need to be warned because we're not much better and perhaps we're not even as good as Christians in other ages who have fallen, terribly fallen in these matters of the accumulation of wealth, the defrauding of employees, extravagant living, and murder. So may we take these warnings to heart and may they come into hearts that hear them, not as from an angry God, as a loving Savior who with tears in his eyes and bleeding wounds in his hands and his feet and his side is pleading with us to live for him in the short life that we have. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.